0: just 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 a And we are back. I'm Eric Slater, and this is next man up. We have a very special guest on for you guys today. He's one of the best in the business. He loves football, and he is none other than ESPN NFL Insider Field Yates. How are you, Field? Thanks for joining me.
1: I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on. How about yourself?
0: I'm good. I can only imagine what you've been going through dealing with COVID and the virus and everything the NFL is trying to do to keep this season a realistic possibility.
1: Well, I feel better. You know, I so say I feel fortunate uh, and and just. Uh, encouraged by some of the progress the NFL has made. And uh, you know, and when you and I are having this conversation, uh, the numbers are very, very strong in the NFL's favor. As, as of this conversation, there are just three players out of close to 2,600 who are on the reserve slash COVID list. So feeling optimistic about the start of the season and just hopeful that everybody can be responsible and do the right things to allow us to have a full season and one that runs pretty close to the schedule the NFL laid out and it's initial addition of that 2020 season slate.
0: So you just said you're feeling optimistic. So, but based on the, you know, the people you're talking to around the league, just what you've heard, is that the sense around the league that this is sustainable for the entire season and that this is something that they're going to be able to, you know, continue through when it's not just a training camp bubble? So.
1: Yeah, and I think, Eric, it's fair to wonder whether this is the easiest the NFL will have to maintain things. And the reason why is that this is the most time you're going to spend around this specific group of people. You mm-hmm. are a football player yourself. You know what training camp is like relative to the regular season. And I'm talking about you as a college student. So uh, the onus is on everybody who steps into that building every single day. It's not just the players. I don't want to make this an issue where it's just the players who have responsibility. The coaches have responsibility. The trainers have responsibility. The general manager and personnel staff has a responsibility. So it's clear that while right now you can do your best to, we we have very encouraging numbers and we feel really good about where things are. Um, It is important to note that um, if people don't continue to carry that responsibility with, Um, you know, the utmost uh, diligence and we can, we could have some issues come the regular season, but I remain confident right now that things are in place and doing a really good job so far. And that I think players and coaches, everybody I just mentioned is in a good spot to understand exactly what they need to do in order to make this season a successful one.
0: Yeah. So you just touched on that with, um, you know, we've seen a little bit in the NLB players who, you know, aren't doing the right thing, aren't responsible and, you know, it's on the players, on the coaches, staff, just in terms of anyone who maybe during the regular season, say breaks protocol, isn't, you know, doing what they're supposed to be is out somewhere and has a negative effect on the team. Is there, are there set guidelines for each teams in terms of what the disciplinary action is going to be? Or does it depend on whether or not that results in, you know, an outbreak on the team?
1: No, so players have been notified that if they engage in high-risk behavior, an example of that would be going to a bar, they face a potential fine. It's a substantial one. This was all collectively bargained by the NFL and the NFLPA, so the players know the guidelines. You and I know this. Even if people know the rules, it doesn't mean that they won't break the rules. And here's my hope. My hope is that NFL players have seen the impact that – um, baseball delays and COVID outbreaks, small or larger than small, have had on that league, right? And I think players in the NFL have to understand that it's important to this is a 100% commitment, and uh, players don't want to risk their own. It's not their. It's not just their livelihood or their future. It's and it may not be NFL players that they're impacting. It really is in a lot of ways. It could be the family members. It could be people that are extended family members. It could be roommates, friends. You name it. So it's a responsibility. There's a lot more than just, you know, the players on the football field. This is about all of us as a country and as a world getting past this.
0: And with the testing, um, I saw you tweet out yesterday that zero positive tests out of twenty-three thousand something tests and. I've also seen that there's been some false positives amongst teams where guys have been testing positive and then later passed. But in that period of the false positive, there's a little bit, you know, there's a few days where they can't be around the team and they have the luxury of being in training camp right now. So is that a concern going into the regular season where guys are going to have to miss practices during the season or possibly games if there are false positives?
1: I mean, it's possible. Um, You know, I would say though, Eric, is that it's a concern – Because guys are competitors and we want them to be out there and uh, we don't want them to miss games when they aren't uh, corona positive or positive for corona but ultimately we need to take a very global view of this at all times and if a guy misses a few days of work while it's unfortunate it's also a reality and the alternative of let's say that you know it's a false positive well even if the player is convinced he's not positive because he's asymptomatic, you know, we know it's not, it's, there's, it's not just symptomatic spreaders. It's asymptomatic spreaders that can be an issue. So mm-hmm. I think ultimately, well, false positives, no one wants them. I would always err on the side of caution with this season. And I think everybody has to accept there's going to be a different level of – there's just going to be differences. It's going to be a different season. And we have to take any concessions that come our way as a result of that.
0: Definitely. And, uh, you know, now just talking about the actual games, you know, in terms, I feel like there's so much talk about the virus and the testing that you forget that they're going to just actually be games played with most of the time, no fans in it. So, you know, the one thing that I find really interesting, I've seen that the MLB doing it and the NBA in terms of pumping, you know, the artificial crowd noise into the stadiums. And I was curious if you've heard anything, you know, in terms of that, because, you know, As a football player, I know home field advantage, I think, in football is bigger than in any other sport, in my opinion. So is there going to be regulation of that in terms of, you know, when opposing teams are on offense, you know, how you can handle kind of that artificial noise? Because that's a big deal in terms of just getting communication and other things throughout the field.
1: Yeah, so um, I do expect there to be some crowd noise pumped in, and I think there's going to be a decision on that soon enough. Um, and I think that what is really important is again, to understand that even if it's a little bit ad- advantageous for the road team to play in a game where there's not, you know, thousands of fans, etc., cetera, you know what, that's one year and hopefully just one season. And, you know, you just have to, um, accept that not everything is going to be normal. We hope that it will be, um, sooner rather than later. I do expect, like I said, I do expect there to be crowd noise. And if you're on offense and there's crowd noise and it impacts your ability to get in and out of the huddle, or if you're on defense and uh, you think it actually gives the offense an advantage because you can't hear as much of what they're saying, you know, my answer is that's okay. That's how this stuff works. And uh, it's, I, I don't want to say a brave new world because I think this is a temporary arrangement, but that's the way that things are going at this moment.
0: With teams. Getting ready for training camp now, we saw the Baltimore Ravens, who a lot of people are considering a Super Bowl you know contender, have a major release with Earl Thomas recently. So there was a physical altercation with his um, fellow safety Chuck Clark in practice, and it sounds like there was an overwhelming voice among players that they wanted him gone. So I'm just saying I just wanted to ask what you've heard about that leading up to his release and what went into that decision.
1: Well – you know, that in and of itself, that one incident may not be enough for them to Ravens to release Earl Thomas and expect it to be conduct detrimental to the team, which is what they uh, noted in their release is that, you know, that was the impetus for this move. And that's important from a financial decision because it would void the $10 million that Earl Thomas was previously guaranteed. But what can allow this situation to come? come under the personal conduct policy, or excuse me, this case, uh, conduct detrimental policy, is that it's a series of behavior. And second time that Earl Thomas has had a confrontation with a teammate uh, since signing with the Ravens, um, this is a player who has been unafraid to speak up. um, And I think he's also been a player that has, in a lot of ways, uh, benefited from being able to be a freelancer at times on defense. And that's worked uh, into his advantage plenty before. But I think that with the Ravens, it was clear this was not the same player that we saw for so many years dominate uh, in Seattle. This is a player who, in many ways, um, you know, has seen a dramatic shift in his value from where he was two years ago to where he is now. Um, but you know, there's been enough reporting and enough steam to prove that this was not a simply talent-based decision. There was a lot that went into this, and for old Thomas, you know, we're gonna learn a lot about him. As the time time that you and I are having this conversation, he's sitting here without a team and without um, a landing spot that we know of as right now.
0: Okay, and what teams do you think – have you heard anything about teams looking at him or where he'd fit in moving forward? You know, there's been some rubblings about the Cowboys and then saw Ian Rappaport said that they're not going to pursue him and then Jerry Jones denied that. But you'd have to think that teams are going to be extremely wary of this being that these were some – Deep seated issues in Baltimore that players were very vocal about. And also, you know, it's not like he had, he was clear in uh, Atlanta, in um, Seattle with his, you know, actions there and what he was doing. So, do you think that he's going to have a team going into the season? You
1: no, know, here's what I would say is, yes, I think he'll have a team. When a player of his stature, we all know Earl Thomas, he's been a multi time Pro Bowler and All Pro, gets released. Our instinct is, oh, he's going to find a team within 10 minutes, right? Um, but that's not always the case. And I think what's clear is that teams are going to have to do a lot more homework on Earl Thomas than maybe some of us on the outside would expect. And it shouldn't be a surprise given that two separate organizations, both the Seahawks and also um, the Ravens most recently have sort of cut bait on Earl Thomas. I don't know what makes most sense. And I think the Cleveland Browns are a team that will at least consider it, given the fact that they just lost Grant Delpit for the season. Um, Their second round pick out of LSU. Uh, Beyond that, though, is you've also got, um, you know, teams that may want to wait until closer to the beginning of the season to see how some of their camp battles work out. So uh, he'll find work. It just may not be nearly the price point that he expected uh, it to be or would have expected it to be based off the fact that he's 16, 17 months removed from signing a four year, $54 million contract.
0: And I wanted to get your opinion. I just saw uh, today the uh, Arizona Cardinals gave Buda Baker a record-setting deal. Um, You've seen other safeties get a lot of money. Uh, Landon Collins got a lot lot of money from the Redskins. And a lot of people are critical of those moves. I'm just – I was curious to get your opinion of you think that teams – I know it's just the direction that the market's trending. Do you think that teams are overpaying for these safeties or – because we're and we're also seeing it with the I think of guys like Jamal Adams and Derwin James who really it's tough to just pigeonhole them as safeties because they do so many things on the field. Do you think that these guys were trending more in a direction where these guys are gonna be valued more as just defensive players, more so than you're paying overpaying for a safety per se? You
1: know, I don't I don't think that it will be something where they, they um, are paid more as defensive. I think positional value will always be a thing. Mm -hmm. But let me, I think the the big thing here with Buda Baker is that while he was signed to a four-year extension worth $59 million, which is $15.75 million per season uh, over those four years, you know, the reality is that Buda Baker had two years left on his contract. So if you look at the six-year lifespan for Buda Baker the Cardinals are saying to themselves, all right, he was previously due, I want to say something like eight million bucks over the next two seasons. So now you've got a guy at six years and sixty-eight million dollars. That's a little over eleven million dollars per season. Just a minute ago, we were talking about Earl Thomas, who was making $14 million per year, um, is a free agent from the Baltimore Ravens. So generally speaking, Um, getting ahead of the curve on these contracts can be very favorable for the team. And from the player's perspective, it's Buda Baker's getting paid sooner, right? I mean, if he doesn't do this deal, he's making, like I said, $8 million over the next two years. And if they get a franchise tag on him in three years, it could be something like $22 million over the next three seasons. Well, Now he's going to make a whole bunch more than that, $10 million today with a signing bonus. So I think that it's important to note that these deals have benefits for both sides. We may be looking at this from now, uh, a couple years from now, as a very favorable deal though, relative to the safety marketplace.
0: And with that, I wanted to get your initial reactions on the Jamal Adams trade also, because I'm from the New York area. I'm a Giants fan. I know a lot of Jets fans and it's something that, you know, a season last season or a year ago, it could almost be inconceivable that the Jets would trade Jamal Adams being that, you know, he was their perennial, all pro, you know, generational type safety. So I wanted to get your opinion on who came out on top of that deal.
1: You know, I don't think it's fair to assign a winner right away because I got it from both sides. Let me just give you the quick synopsis of how I understand it from both sides. The Seahawks needed an identity in their secondary, and they got one in a hurry with Jamal Adams. He's one of the most impactful safeties in the league, perhaps the most impactful safety in the league. And while you're giving up a lot, I think they are viewing themselves as legitimate Super Bowl contenders both this year and next. So this might wind up being something like the 27th and the 30th uh, pick in the first round. So. If you go back and look at the draft chart um, year over year, which, you know, that's a little bit of a subjective decision, a little bit of an objective chart, I should say. Some people value picks differently. But if it's a – I think uh, let's just say it's the 27th and the 30th pick over the next two drafts. I don't even know if that's worth one top 12 first-round pick. Mm -hmm. So would people be – Saying the same thing to the Seahawks, if they paid to the top, uh, uh, traded the top 12 pick, they would say, Oh, just a first round pick. Jamal Adams is worth it. So mm-hmm. that's the context. Now, meanwhile, for the Jets, is that you had an unhappy player who was not hiding his emotions at all. He uh, wanted to make a ton of money in a hurry, which he's worth a lot of money, um, but the Jets didn't seem to have the offer on the table that was going to make him happy. So you wonder what could have changed to make him happy. This is Joe Douglas's. Uh, you know he's, he's still new on this job and if the precedent is that a player can speak unhappily and talk about his contract and eventually the team will acquiesce to his desires well then what happens when the next player from the Jets is unhappy with his contract he's going to go well Jamal Adams spoke on it and you know what ended up happening he got the contract he wanted so I think what ends up happening in these cases the team decides you know, precedent matters. And two first-round picks is a ton of capital. So I think ultimately both teams acquitted themselves really well.
0: Definitely. And you know within that division there, a lot of people are you know somewhat writing off the New England Patriots with Tom Brady's departure and also the opt-outs that they've had. They brought in Cam Newton, you know, big name, big move. And I just wanted your opinion because we've seen – I saw a report that Cam Newton, they said, is getting the bulk of the reps over Jared Stidham. So, do you buy that Cam Newton is the starter in New England come week one?
1: Well, so, is he the starter? As in, like, it's been announced to the team and him? No, I don't buy that. Is he the starter? Yeah, of course he's a starter, right? And um, this is, you know, he's going to take some time uh, for him to be fully up to speed with everything that they're doing. But, This is Cam Newton, and we can overthink a lot of things in life. Ultimately, though, this is a guy who is uniquely talented, skilled, energetic, charismatic, a leader. He brings him an identity. And I will just say that while uh, training camp can always be long, you're going through it yourself, or you'll go through it yourself, or have gone through it yourself, right? You know what it's like. There's a little something different when you've got some edge, like Cam Newton, to – bring some excitement and energy every single day. And I think it's been a real jolt in the arm for the Patriots. And I think it's a player uh, who has a chance to, uh, you know, he's only signed for one year. So I don't want to say that he has a chance to be, you know, their solution to uh, the throne to Tom Brady. But I think if things go well this year, I wouldn't be surprised if both sides are very motivated to make this a marriage of long-term.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I see, with the Patriots, a lot of people writing them off. You know, Cam Newton hasn't been talked about as much as I've thought. And you know, with Josh McDaniels, there they're a team that's thrived with you know short timing routes in the passing game. They give their quarterbacks. I mean, it was Tom Brady, but you have to think they'll give a guy like Newton a lot of freedom at the line of scrimmage to you know audible plays, do what he wants, and take advantage of his football IQ. So, me personally, I just think that he's going to have a complete resurgence, and I think that. It's going to be a really good fit for him there in New England.
1: Yeah, I think that he's got a lot of people to prove uh, wrong, right? So you can understand the motivation from his side. I'm excited for it. You know, I'm excited for all 32 teams to take the field. But Cam Newton is certainly one of the players I'm most excited to watch this year, given the change of scenery, the redemptive element to it, and just the excitement of uh, the Patriots with an offense that might look a lot different and. Maybe not as effective, but it's, you know, it's a team that has been relevant for a long time and it's fun to watch them continue to be uh, high level uh, contenders almost every season.
0: You actually interned with the Patriots front office earlier in your career, correct? Yep. And, uh, you know, you went to Wesleyan as well. So you have that connection with Belichick. I wanted to ask you about them and how much, at least when you were there or since you've been covering them, do you see that? small school personalities show up in their scouting department and coaches and how they go about stuff there because Belichick has a little bit of a reputation for bringing in some small school guys, players, coaches, and front office who may have been you know, somewhat overlooked.
1: Um, yeah, I think that I w- what I would say is they just do a good job of turning over uh, every stone and they figure it out. Um, whether you're a wide receiver, I'm sorry, a college quarterback, turn wide receiver like Julian Edelman, whether you're a guy like, you know, Troy Brown, who's a longtime Pro Bowl wide receiver and a turn man who decides to give you some snaps in the secondary, whether it's a wrestler like Stephen Neal went to Kent State becomes one of your, you know, better, most reliable guards. I mean, they've just always found a way to, um, you know, not worry so much about what a player can't do, but worry more about what a player can do and develop that player into something special. So. I have a lot of admiration for the way they run their uh, program in so many ways.
0: When you were there, did you have any interaction with Belichick, or do you have any stories just as a young guy? You know, being in being in a place like that that has had so much success. You know, were there any things that were really eye opening for you there?
1: Most important thing is that Bill Belichick is concerned with winning more than anything else, and. He wants people to uh, prove themselves. And if you can earn his trust, then he's going to rely upon you. And to me, that is all really, really important. And I think that as a result of that, uh, they find people that are willing to go as far as they possibly can go to contribute to a Super Bowl winning operation. And that's their goal every single year.
0: All right. I wanted to round this out with some fantasy football talk because I know a lot of people have their drafts coming up and – Would love to hear what you have to say. Biggest draft sleeper people should be looking for maybe later in the draft in their fantasy drafts.
1: Yeah, I'm not really a sleepers person. I think the term is overused in fantasy. Um, I think it's all about relative to where you're being drafted. So some of the names that I call sleepers this year are not people, not names that you haven't heard of before. I think James... Uh is being undrafted under drafted I should say for the Pittsburgh Steelers I think Julian Edelman's being under drafted this year for the New England Patriots. Um, I think there are a lot of players at both those spots that could be major contributors. You know, I think if you're going to talk about players that like maybe haven't been discussed at all, maybe a guy like Russell Gage for the Atlanta Falcons could wind up being a pretty solid player for you. But uh, generally speaking, I shy away from that term. I just think that it's a little bit misleading given how much interest there is from people in the game of fantasy football. A lot of people know all the names that we discuss.
0: I wanted to ask you about the second year quarterbacks, you know, Kyler Murray, Daniel Jones, Drew Locke, Dwayne Haskins. I know you're very high on Murray. So what do you see from him from a fantasy perspective this season?
1: Yeah. He's got a chance to really be the breakout player at the position this year. And you go back and look at last season and he was solid. Don't get me wrong, but I think the idea that they haven't yet fully unleashed him as a runner is going to go a long way in fantasy football this year. And, uh, you know, much, much improved offense in general. Really, really good addition, obviously. And DeAndre Hopkins and Kenyon and Drake returning. And, you know, some good young pieces along that offensive line that is a chance to improve. So, no reason for me to believe that this team won't be able to score a lot of points and they might need to because they play in a very competitive division so Kyler Murray has a chance I think to be one of the quarterbacks who's up there in terms of total number of opportunities which we define for a quarterback as both passing attempts and rushing attempts
0: and I'm curious to ask you about Drew Locke also because I've seen him really low in most of the fantasy rankings and they've had a big offseason in terms of offensive weapons you know they have Melvin Gordon in there also they brought in They drafted Jerry, Judy, KJ Hamler, and they also have Cortland Sutton and Noah Fant. So one of the most dangerous wide receiving cores, I think, in the league there. So what do you see from Drew Locke? Do you think that he's a player that could exceed expectations?
1: Yeah, he's another guy that has been sort of buzzworthy and trendy. I think that, uh, you know, the rankings you'll see for Drew Locke, Um, it's pretty reflective. I think less of him and the player. It's more about the depth of the position. So certainly could be a very, very good player in fantasy football this year. And he could be a guy that, um, you know, a couple of years from now, we're looking at that AFC West as having maybe the best core of young quarterbacks and wide receivers in the NFL. All
0: right, Field, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for everything. Uh, Hope we have somewhat of a normal NFL season and look forward to continuing to follow your work.
1: Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you.